how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast interview series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, chefs, and various other types of creatives as we bridge the gap between creativity and productivity. Here we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and lessons that help promote a successful creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. This episode is brought to you by IronJohnGear.com. In between your creative pursuits, make sure to check out Iron John Gear for top apparel, footwear, fitness items, outdoor supplies, sports gear, and much more. Visit the website for top deals on things like lanterns, backpacks, tents, snow clothing, bomber hats, sunglasses, fishing gear, and more. Visit ironjohngear.com today and save money on your next adventure. In addition to Iron John Gear, make sure to also check out Freelancer Class, where you can learn how to become a freelancer full-time or part-time. The online course will teach you how to make money online as a writer, marketer, designer, virtual assistant, accountant, or salesperson. Stay tuned after the show to learn how to get access for free to this $99 valued freelancer course, along with some other free items on our website, creativeprinciples.live. Whitney Cummings is a comedian, actor, writer, and producer. In her directorial debut, Whitney partnered with Neil Brennan from Chappelle Show to adapt a nonfiction neurology book called The Female Brain into a comedy. In this interview, the writer-director talks about her personal traps of motivation, the importance of brain rest, why she likes having other comedians on set, and how she balances the many pieces of her profession. So you've worked as a stand-up, you've written for television and for film. Do you write or think in a different manner when you're writing alone versus when you're collaborating on a project? Yes, yes. Um, when I'm doing it alone, it's usually horrific. <laughs> and it's, it's, you know, it's very hard to stay disciplined. It's very hard to stay motivated. I have to kind of set up lots of traps and tricks and manipulate myself to keep myself writing. Um, like you can only have lunch if you write this many pages. Like I really have to um, <laughs> uh, use punitive measures to stay focused and productive. But when I collaborate, it's usually, you know, and, and, you know, I think most collaborators are very picky with the person you choose. So, so I always choose someone who I think is, um, smarter than me and just as motivated, if not more motivated than me so that, um, there's not an issue of getting work done. But, you know, for this project I just did, you know, I did it with Neil Brennan, who's a really, really funny comedian and actually really brilliant improviser. And we had the most fun time where we just essentially improvised the scenes instead of sitting down and what would this person say? What would this person say? We just had the fight in real life. Um, and then tr and transcribed it, which is such a more fun way to write than the torture of being alone. 
Do you have um, questions like if you're writing by yourself, do you do you know that a joke will work or do you really question it more when you're alone in the room like that? That's a really interesting question. Um, if it's a character-based joke, I sometimes you don't quite know. You know, you have to get out there into rehearsal and sort of see because something that happened a page ago might affect the impact of a joke later in the scene, you know? So it's sometimes you just got to really get in there with the actors or have, you know, I like to do table reads a lot with my friends where I'll basically have a first draft of the script and I'll go, Hey, do you guys want to come over? You know, dinner's on me. I'll buy you some drinks. Can you just read this out loud with me so that I can get a gauge? Um, if it's a jokey joke, like a, like a roast joke, I usually can ascertain if it's going to work or not, but it's so tricky because most human beings don't talk like that. So even a really good, well-written joke dropped into a scene with a couple arguing in their bathroom is going to feel like too written. So a lot of times I end up pulling out anything that feels too, um, uh, that feels false. A lot of times jokes just, it's like, Oh, it's a good joke. It's funny. It just feels false. You know? Um, I re-listened to your interview that you did with Tim Ferriss on his podcast, and one of the questions he asked you to summarize was basically if you had to prep a novice comedian in eight weeks. In your answer, you mentioned that people have a dysmorphic view of themselves. Can you describe what that means and how knowing yourself or learning your voice helped you to improve your writing? You know, I think that we all walk around with this idea of who we are. I mean, I'm not. this is not the idea that I made up. You know, um, many people, um, you, it, sometimes it's referred to the mask that we wear or the role that we play or, you know, whatever, however we were cast as children in the pecking order of our family, whether if you were like the little brother to a big brother, you're kind of the sidekick or you're a doormat or you're sort of the lost child who's living in the shadow of someone else. And then we sort of move on with our life and we sort of see ourselves the way other people cast us when we were younger. And I certainly found that with myself. Um, like, you know, when you, it's very, you know, you, a woman who's like, Oh, I look terrible. And you're like, you're beautiful. What do you, how can you possibly, how can you not see that? Or when someone's like, I'm an idiot. And you're like, you're the smartest person I know (laughs) what, you know, just the sort of incongruous nature of sometimes your reality and reality based on your experiences. So the average person that meets you, like if I meet someone, I don't know you got bullied in high school. I don't know that you, you know, were the quarterback. I don't know that you are divorced. I know nothing about you. Um, So when you're approaching a group of strangers, you on some level get to curate um, your identity. And, but we all carry around so much baggage and we assume everybody knows what we've lived through and they haven't. Um, so I just think it's an interesting, I went on stage when I first started very apologetic, thinking I needed to be loud and aggressive because I grew up in a home where I had to be loud and aggressive to get seen. Um, I thought I had to like neuter myself. Um, you know, in my family, it was like, it was, it was not encouraged to be like feminine or draw attention to yourself. I just assumed everyone in that audience had the same, uh, neurology as, as the people that raised me. So I just, I was stuck in a sort of old costume with old tools and old weapons that I didn't need anymore. So I I just think it's, it's, uh, it took me a long time to learn like, Oh, these people aren't my parents. (laughs) These people aren't, 
my brother or my sister or my ex-boyfriend, like these are new people that um, aren't really interested in my um, survival mechanism. In that same interview, you mentioned a pilot on Comedy Central that never got made. Um, it revolved around going to AA. You also said it was one of the best things you felt like you had written at that point. What about that script made you feel that way? And do you still feel that way? You know, I think there's something about, you know, the freshness and openness of writing your first. I mean, that wasn't the first thing I've ever written, but it was before I had been through, you know, the process of like having a show and getting network notes and, you know, making television, you know, and making things the key is to keep going without getting your spirit crushed. And I look back at that script and I'm like, Oh wow. Like that was before I thought about things like act structure and uh, is this character likable? And, you know, like, cause now when I write something, I'm so aware of like, what's the network going to say or what's the critic going to say or what are, you know, what is, you know, the, the New York Times going to think, you know, you get so, so many voices. It was before I had any of those critical voices in my head. And there's such a bravery to that script. And that's kind of amateur in a way, but it just was, I look back at it and it was just really brave and um, imaginative and some things that I worry over time as a writer, you have to really play defense against to keep that, that, playfulness alive. So in the last year or two, you've, you've published a book, you've written and directed a movie, you've had specials, written series, and everything else in between. How do you find the balance with such a workload? I don't. <laughs> I don't. I'm not known for my incredibly balanced life. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I think that all happened over a couple of years. You know, the book is a kind of thing that I think that everyone should write a book like, I think everyone has a book in them, especially if you're a writer and, and, you know, you're writing TV or movies or stand-up or whatever. There's certain things that you're like, I need to get this out, or I think this is worth expressing, but it's not really a movie and it's not a TV show. It's not really funny enough to be stand-up. And so it's stuff that sort of had been built up in my sort of brain for a while and I, I I needed to get rid of it in a lot of ways. And um so it was it was it, it was fast. Writing I was able to write the book pretty fast. Because again, I also I wasn't thinking about what's the network gonna think, what is this character gonna say? You just write the exact truth. And I, I, I really think it was a good exercise for me to get back to that stream of consciousness type of writing because I think when you're doing it professionally, you develop a trepidation that for creativity. And I think I was getting somewhat thwarted around that and paralyzed. So the book was good. I think for me to just like write 30 pages a day without worrying about spelling errors or grammar or any of that, like just working that muscle. Um, you know, I'm really pretty obsessive about brain rest. Um, and I used to work... 16, 17 hour days and you get half as much done and the, the quality is not as good. So I finally, after like, you know, you brought Tim Ferriss and us, all this research is coming out of how much more productive we can be if we work small spurts of time. So I really try to wake up early in the morning before I do anything that demands my energy. I try to write for like two or three hours and that really helps me. Um, 
really, really helps me to just try to bang out as much as I can because if I start talking on the phone or go to the gym or do something else, my, I just get too tired. Um, so small spurts of energy are, are key for me. And then another thing I do, which I don't know if this is helpful, but I work – this is, might sound like it's um, – hypocritical based on what I just said, but I work when I'm not working. Like if I'm sitting in traffic, I always have like a um, recorder or like the voice memo on my phone and I'll speak into my phone. Um, so, you know, Michael Patrick King gave me very good advice. He was like, you don't just work when you're in front of a computer, you know, when you're walking around, when you're doing your laundry, when, you know, like sometimes that's actually when I think of the best ideas because I'm not putting so much pressure on myself. So I definitely work a lot, but sometimes it doesn't look the way we think work is supposed to look. Um, so in your book, there are sections like self-help and sexism and egg freezing, eating, eating disorders, just very personal stories. A lot of these you have expressed in interviews and things publicly. And the entertainment business is changing as we speak. But among these stories, is there one message you'd like to kind of get out there for young women entering the business, either as a writer, actress, comedian, that they absolutely must know? Keep going. I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe that's, that's not very poignant or profound. Like, just keep talking. Keep writing. Just keep doing it. You know, I think that it's so easy to get discouraged. And, yeah, now, as you said, is an amazing time. But I think because women tend to be conditioned to talk less, um, it's now, it's, it's really, now's the time we need as many voices as possible. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think a lot of, we're shamed that we talk too much and women, they gab, 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 like keep talking. Women are certainly listening to you and, um, women are gaining more and more power. So there are going to be more jobs available, I think very soon. How did you first kind of start to find your voice through comedy? I've heard, um, like Seth Rogen, for example, he, he kind of, somebody finally told him, Hey, you're the only 13 year old kid in here. Talk about stuff like that. Like what, what made you kind of realize what your type of humor was going to be on stage? Great question. You know, I got some actually really good advice from someone, um, if, if, if I may. Uh, in, and I think that it's also really important to ask people for feedback. It's really hard to do because um, you ha you're risking criticism and rejection, and you have to be able to deal with an honest answer. But I got some feedback from a guy named Byron Allen. He's like the most, if you either watch him every night or have never heard of him, it's, it's like he's got a fascinating kind of career. He does these like late night syndicated shows where he has comics come on and, you know, they're in local markets. And he's kind of an incredible businessman. And he does, um, you know, orders 100 episodes of a show at a very low cost and has this sort of interesting business model, whatever. The point is I was in his office one day 10 years ago talking to him about a show and, you know, I was just trying to get a job at all costs. And he said, he said to me, he's like, you know, this is, he, and, and I, I remember saying it, he was, he goes, what's, what's your favorite show? And I was like, uh, at the time I was doing jokes about religion and, and airplane food and trying to be everything to everyone. 
And I was like, well, I really love Sex in the City because I loved watching Sex in the City. That was kind of my religion. And he's like, great. Then be the Sex in the City of stand-up. And I, I just had never thought about it that way. Like, I, I was like, oh, like, I want to talk about what Sex in the City would, if they were still on the air, I could, like, pick up where they left off, you know? And that was, like, a nice little, like, guiding post for me in the beginning to, like, I didn't want to feel like I was imitating or anything like that, but I was just like, oh, yeah, like, you can be, you can, because Sex and the City exclusively talked about sex and relationships, and it did very well. And it, it just taught me you can corner the market on something. You don't have to be everything to ev- everyone. So from then on, I realized, like, oh, I can just talk about the things I'm interested in and not w- force myself to write material about things that aren't my strong suit. Um, and that gave me permission to get very narrow and specific about the things that I kind of talk about. Um, and, you know, that, that, that helped me sort of put everything in focus and get blinders on about how I write. And then it just sort of went from there. I think I just, um, I, I, I mostly talk about things that drive me, keep me up at night, that get under my skin because it. I, I, I can usually ascertain like, oh, if it's pissing me off, it's pissing someone else off. And, and then in terms of the book and in terms of movies, I try to think backwards in terms of what movie or book do I wish had been available to me when I was 20. And then I try to make that thing. It feels like just listening to some of your past interviews over the last couple of years with Ferris or Joe Rogan, um, you spend a lot of time thinking, reflecting, and just generally doing research on male versus female thinking. When did you start to turn these ideas into the new movie, The Female Brain? I guess it was like, I mean, I think that it was like not this special, but my second Comedy Central special, it talked about that book in it. And that, so that must have been, it, it's taken about four years from beginning to end to make. Um, but I was talking about that book in my stand-up special, and then a financer was at the show and was like, why don't you turn that into like a movie? And I was like, you can't make a nonfiction book into a movie, crazy person. And then I went home that night, and I was like, oh, shit, why not? I think that in our field, people are constantly chasing the thing that just succeeded. So bridesmaids succeeded. And everyone's like, we want a new bridesmaid. Do another bridesmaid. Bridesmaids in Vegas. Bridesmaids in Cancun. Bridesmaids in And it's like the thing to imitate isn't the product that just did well. It's the motive behind the product or the originality of the product. So it's, I, I don't think audience, I think audiences are really smart. That's, a lot of people don't operate from that, but I sort of do. And I'm like, all the movies that I love were are original and weird and kind of off the wall. And I'm sure when they were pitched, people thought they were a little nuts um, or not marketable. And like, I want to imitate that, the, the sort of environment in which the movie gestated. And um, so that was about four years ago. And then about Six months later, I asked my friend Neil Brennan if he wanted to write it with me, and he did, which was a good sign because he's very picky and has really good taste. So I was like, okay, this could be something. And then we wrote a script that made me laugh every time I read it. Um, And then I just got obsessed, which I think is part of my formula for getting something done is I just have to get very obsessed. And I remember just going, I think this will help people. Um, And that's what sort of motivated me to keep 
keep going. And then, of course, my own confusion and frustration about this subject matter, which is seemingly endless, makes me keep wanting to work on it. And it kept me motivated because I, I was curious. I got to talk to a neurologist on the phone every day. Like, that's my dream. Um to dig into these and to have more questions than answers. Because if you have more answers than questions, you're going to get bored. So when you read the book, The Female Brain, I've, I've read that you said it helped you kind of determine the difference between a chemical reaction and a legitimate feeling. I'm assuming like nutrition and sleep are part of this, but is there another example that comes to mind of how this occurs in everyday life? Yeah. So for me, um, like I get anxious and I get nervous um, and it's, you know, there's some, something called epigenetic imprinting, which I learned about from this book, which means that whatever chemicals were released in your mom's body when you were in utero, the baby is born addicted to. And adrenaline, cortisol. So it's like if you're very stressed out as a pregnant mother, just like a crack baby would be born addicted to crack, babies can be born addicted to adrenaline and cortisol. And I grew up in a very you know, hectic household. There were lots of people around. There were lots of kids. Like, like, and then I went to this neurologist who's like, oh, you probably have a hyperactive amygdala, which means that you produce adrenaline very quickly. Um, and it could be because of, of that, that I've always had, you know, somewhat of an adrenaline addiction, um, which means I need a certain amount of adrenaline to feel normal. And I would find myself in meetings, uh, feeling, even if I've been slept well and eaten and all the stuff you mentioned before, I find myself getting adrenalized over kind of smaller things that didn't deserve a big reaction. And I wanted to have control over that. And I don't want to be an anxious, stressed out person. Um, and there's ways that you can actually like hack that um, formula and reduce your adrenaline tolerance so that you aren't getting activated every time someone is 10 minutes late or doesn't call you back or doesn't give you the answer you want. Um, so for me, adrenaline and cortisol, the two stress hormones were the ones that applied the most to my life specifically. Um, and then I don't know if this is interesting to anybody, but I also have had migraines most of my life. So learning about the hormones and stuff of, of my brain really helped me to avoid getting migraines. So it, it really is kind of an amazing life hack, some of this stuff. So you're a co-writer on the film. You're also, this is your first time directing. Um, how important was it to include some comedians like Will Sasso and Dion Cole in the film? And as the writer-director, did you leave some space for new jokes or at least some time, time for improv on the set? Yes. I mean, honestly, like, comedians make me feel safe because I know that comedians will not let something not be funny. Like, we'll, comedians are constitutionally incapable of, like, not... Um, getting a reaction out of people um, if they're performing. So Andrew Schultz, who played um, Blake Griffin's kind of nemesis in the end of the movie, Will Sasso. Um, yeah, Dion Cole. I really wanted to, and by the way, Blake Griffin, I include in that category, and Cecily Strong. They were both so funny. And um, I think with a comedian, you can usually get a dramatic performance um, as well. So I'm never worried. I'm just, you know, and, and certainly the comics that I was lucky enough to hire, like, aren't capable of being false. And you can never go wrong. Like, when you have 20 minutes left, you're running out of light, everything has gone wrong, 
if I'm going to pick one batter to hit it out of the park or one, you know, technical foul free throw shooter, like I'm always, I, I tend to gravitate towards a comedian because I just, I, I, I trust that they're going to have the instincts that I need. Um, so I'm pretty uh, shameless about <laughs> putting comedians in any part. I, I mean, there's a role of a doctor that I, I put Maz Jabrani in. It's like three straight lines. But I was like, you know, I know that he's going to bring something weird and special to it. And um, so, and yes, basically, Will Sasso, Andrew Schultz, uh, and Dion Cole, um, yeah, I was like, literally do whatever you want. So I was like, let's do one take where we just have it, where we have sort of the bones of the scene, and then do literally whatever you want. Um, it was, I think, super important that everyone felt like they could play and explore and see where the scene took them, um, you know. So there was a, tr- a lot of improv in the Will Sasso scene, so much so that it actually was kind of hard to edit together because there was so much movement, but it was worth the nightmare surgery uh, in the in the editing room. But, um, yeah, I'm a really, really big fan of, of hiring comedians and dramatic roles as well. Like Dion's work as a dramatic actor was really, really beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else you want to share about the film? Um, I hope people like it. You know, I think it's, it's a weird endeavor to make a neurology comedy. Uh, I kind of wanted to do like a magic school bus type uh, movie without, you know, with sex, if that makes sense. <laughs> that, feels, that feels like a weird combination, actually. Um, yeah, I, I just, I hope people like it. It's quirky and odd and uh, funny. And I think they, there's a lot of really incredible performances in it. So I just, I hope people like it. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Before you leave, don't forget to sign up for the weekly newsletter. We also get free access to the freelancer course, Master the Freelancer Mindset. This system will teach you exactly how to find clients online, which includes step one, the psychology of the mindset, step two, how to create a killer profile, and step three, how to find quality clients. This online course is valued at $99. It can be yours for free. In addition to the free course, you'll get access to the ebook How Hollywood Screenwriters Annihilate Writer's Block. This contains advice from Aaron Sorkin, Carrie Fukunaga, and William Monahan. You can find all of this and more on creativeprinciples.live. Visit the website for new interviews, articles, and the daily blog. That's creativeprinciples.live.